This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. Today's episode is about Mabel Pinghua Li. Mabel Li was born in China in 1896. Her missionary father moved to the United States when she was very young. And at first, Mabel and her mother remained in Hong Kong where Mabel learned English. When she won a scholarship to study in the United States, she and her mother were able to get U.S. visas, and they joined her father in New York City, where he was a minister at the Morning Star Mission. The Lee family lived in a tenement at 53 Bayard Street in Chinatown by 1905. Mabel Lee attended Erasmus Hall Academy in Brooklyn. In 1912, suffragists in New York City planned a parade to advocate for women's voting rights. In the parade, on May 4, 1912, Mabel Lee, then only 16 years old, helped lead the parade on horseback from its starting point in Greenwich Village. The parade drew a crowd of 10,000. Anna Howard Shaw, who was then president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, or NASA, followed Lee, carrying a banner that read, NASA Catching Up with China. Lee began her studies at Barnard College in New York City. Barnard was the all-women's school founded when Columbia University refused to admit women. At Barnard, Lee majored in history and philosophy. She joined the debating club and the Chinese Students' Association and wrote for the Chinese Students Monthly. In May 1914, Lee wrote an essay in that publication titled The Meaning of Woman Suffrage in which she argued that suffrage for women was necessary to a successful democracy. In 1915, Lee gave a speech at the suffrage workshop put on by the Women's Political Union. The speech was titled China's Submerged Half and was covered in the New York Times. In it, Lee argued, quote, the welfare of China and possibly its very existence as an independent nation, depend on rendering tardy justice to its womankind. For no nation can ever make real and lasting progress in civilization unless its women are following close to its men, if not actually abreast with them. After Barnard, Lee attended Columbia Teachers College, where she earned a master's degree in educational administration. In 1917, she was admitted to Columbia University for a doctorate in economics. Although Columbia College did not start admitting women to study for undergraduate degrees until the 1980s, it had been admitting women in small numbers to graduate programs 
since the 1880s. At Columbia University, Lee was the vice president of the Columbia Chinese Club, an associate editor of the Chinese Students Monthly. In 1917, the state of New York gave women the right to vote. But because of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, Chinese immigrants, like Li and her family, were ineligible for naturalization, and thus could not be granted the vote. When Li graduated from Columbia in 1921, she became the first Chinese woman to graduate with a Ph.D. in economics. Her doctoral dissertation, titled The Economic History of China with Special Reference to Agriculture, can still be found for sale online. Li had always planned to return to China after her schooling. Highly educated women had difficulty finding appropriate work in the United States, and that was especially true for Chinese women. In China, Li could have started a school for girls and could have helped build China after the 1911 revolution. However, in 1924, Li's father died, and she remained in New York, taking over his role as director of the First Chinese Baptist Church of New York City. In memory of her father, Li raised funds from the American Baptist Home Mission Society and local Chinese-American organizations to fund a Chinese Christian center. In 1926, she purchased the building at 21 Pell Street in Chinatown. In 1954, she was finally able to secure the title for that building solely under the First Chinese Baptist Church, which became independent of the American Baptist Home Mission Society at that point. The church became the first self-supporting Chinese church in America and still operates at 21 Pell Street. The Chinese Christian Center became a community hub within Chinatown, offering English classes and other skill-building activities, a medical clinic, and even a kindergarten where Lee taught. Maybelline never married, and she was able to maintain economic independence, in part because of her education. She died in 1966 at the age of 70. Although Lee is not as well-known as other suffragists of the time, she was recognized in 2018 when the U.S. Congress passed a bill introduced by Representative Nydia Velazquez to rename the Chinatown Station U.S. Post Office at 6 Doyer Street in Mabel Lee's honor. To help us understand more, I'm joined now by Dr. Kathleen Cahill, Associate Professor of History at Penn State and author of the 2020 book, Recasting the Vote, How Women of Color Transformed the Suffrage Movement. Hi, Kathleen. It is wonderful to finally meet you face-to-face, virtually, (laughs) and thank you for joining me. Absolutely. It is a delight to be here. I really enjoy your podcast. Thank you. So I want to start just by asking, uh, first, how you got the idea of writing a book about women of color in the suffrage movement, uh, and then more specifically, how you got interested in writing about Mabel Lee. Yeah, absolutely. I had sort of two ways that I came to this project. Um, The first was 
realizing that the anniversary of the 19th Amendment, um, the centennial was coming up and sort of thinking about what those conversations would look like and assuming that they would primarily be focused on white women and the East Coast. And as someone who studies um, Western history and who was living in New Mexico at the time and thinking about sort of the variety of women's experiences, I wanted to uh, think about how I could include some of you know, stories that might look really different from our regular suffrage stories um, in that conversation about the the anniversary. One of the reasons I came up with that is because I had come across um, a woman named Marie Botno Baldwin, who is a member of the Turtle Mountain Chippewa Nation um, and of Ojibwe and French heritage. And she had marched in the 1913 suffrage parade. And I had learned about her through my first book, which was an exploration of women who'd worked for the Federal Indian Service, what becomes the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And so kind of taking that earlier research and thinking about contributing to the anniversary conversations, I thought, well, I'll write an article about Marie Botno Baldwin. And, <laughs> and as these things are wont to do, right, it sort of snowballed into a much bigger project. And the way I came to Mabel Lee was um, I thought, well, let's think about that 1913 parade and some of the women of color who were involved in it. So starting with Marie Baldwin and thinking about indigenous women. And then uh, I knew that African-American women were there because of the work that had been done, particularly on um, Ida B. Wells by other scholars. Um, and so I was sort of looking for, well, who who else might have been there? And this is, we can talk later about the digitization of newspapers, but there was one Chinese woman um, who's identified as Mrs. Wu, who was in that parade on one of the floats. And in the process of trying to find out more about her and kind of Chinese women who were involved, I stumbled across Mabel Lee's story because the year before the DC parade, which was 1913, in 1912, there is a major parade in New York City. And Mabel Lee is really one of the centerpieces of um, press coverage about that parade. So it, she really was the reason that I even moved beyond kind of the 1913 parade and the project really um, expanded. Yeah. And so she's in these these newspaper stories about 1912 when she's only 16 years old. <laughs> right? And yeah. uh, so we've got those sources, but we actually have a lot of material about her, a lot of sources to look through. Can you talk some about what what those are, the the kinds of ways that you were able to learn about her life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the great thing about the newspapers was it allowed me to sort of find some of these women um, because they are in the papers and they're named and I can kind of follow up on, on that. But then expanding beyond that, um, you know, I started looking at, well, where might Mabel Lee have been um, having other kinds of conversations. So um, the Chinese Student Association, which was a college organization of Chinese students in the United States, had a journal, um, the Chinese Students Monthly, that luckily I was able to access at the time. Um, I was at Princeton and they had it in a database. Um, so I could go through that and find you know, she wrote three articles for them, um, specific ones, but very specifically about feminism and suffrage, the others constantly touching on sort of the issue of women's rights. But she's also kind of all over the reports um, that were also in that journal. And so learning about what she was doing in that organization helped me think about how her suffrage activism um, wasn't just confined to, again, the kind of traditional 
National American Women's Suffrage Association that we often think of, but was in these other um, community spaces. And then because she is um, a Chinese immigrant, I knew that there were um, immigration files and I knew that she had gone back to China. So um, trying to find, trying to track those down. And I was able to find the file for her first trip, which I believe was 1923. So when she leaves the United States, because she is not a citizen and because she is Chinese, um, she has to request um, permission to come back in, which was not necessarily guaranteed. So the file is very thick, right, where she has to get sort of um, non-Chinese people um, to affirm she is who she is. She has to prove that she has been a student. Um, I actually love, she's a little sassy, I think, and she gives them, she by this point has a PhD, right? So she has um, a degree from Barnard College. As an undergraduate, she has a degree from Teachers College at Columbia. Um, and then she has a PhD and she literally sends them her 621 page dissertation <laughs> to prove that she has been studying. Right. She goes to China a second time in 1929. And I that file um, it seems to be missing. I've tried to find it um, in Seattle and San Francisco and they can't track it down. So um, and then. Um, her the first Chinese Baptist church um, that her father founded and that she um, ran for many years still exists. And another scholar had written an article about her and he connected me with um, Pastor Bayer Lee, who's, who's not related to Mabel. And so they have, that community has been really generous with me. Um, and in fact, I, as I mentioned, I'm going to, um, speak uh, there tomorrow. They're holding a, another anniversary celebration for her 100th anniversary of her PhD, um, which was in 1921. So they've been very generous in talking to me and sharing um, sources. And, um, and again, they really have kept her memory alive. So all of those, um, right, once I was able to find her name, kind of following up in all of these other uh, places really opened up her story. Yeah, I think what's so perhaps not surprising, but uh, feels surprising is that we don't know her better, right? You know, so and this is a thing I think a lot about on this podcast in general is why don't we know these stories better? Why aren't these things that something uh, that we hear more about? And sometimes, of course, the answer is we don't have sources. But here, obviously, the sources are there. They could have been found. And there's the First Baptist Church that continues to 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 think about her and to to celebrate her. So there's no, as far as I can tell, full length biography of her. I looked around for videos about her and there'll be like a little one minute video and, you know, like all these one minute videos, I'll repeat the same stories over and over again. So why do you think uh, this really important figure, uh, someone who is Chinese American and a woman and gets a PhD from Columbia in 1921 in economics. I mean, this is like a, a, a big story. She's the, the head of this suffrage parade. You know, why why has her story been, uh, you know, except in these small pockets, not more widely thought about, more widely talked about? Yeah, I mean, that's the, the what is it, $64,000 question. <laughs> um, it's a really good question. And I the the answer I've come up with is her story didn't fit. Right. It didn't kind of fit into our narratives for a lot of the women I write about. They're talked about as activists, but not necessarily suffragists. And then their activism is often in kind of more recognizable places. So 
you know, Gertrude Bonin or Zizek Kalashaw, who's, um, who you've talked about in your podcast, you know, she's very well known as a leader um, in the Society of American Indians or, or as an author. And Mabel Lee certainly wrote some things, but didn't publish any books. And the people that she was writing for were really this um, Chinese student audience, many of whom went back to China, right? They couldn't naturalize in the U.S., um, and then kind of a, an international audience of um, business people and missionaries. So it, it really, and, and really the, the Chinese suffragists, even those in the U.S. are often at the time were positioned as foreign, right? They were Chinese, they were part of the Chinese movement. Um, and that has a lot to do with the U.S. citizenship laws that, that were keeping them from becoming citizens, but also in the way that they were being othered. Um, and so I think her story kind of falls into that. And so she didn't get remembered as a suffragist. Um, she also, uh, you know, really does most of her work in the Chinese community in Chinatown and mainstream U.S. narratives of U.S. history are still not great about incorporating um, kind of those there again, the Chinese were seen as kind of outsiders and others and not really part of the central story. So I think that's that's a big part of it. Um, and, you know, there's a whole there's a whole kind of story about what happens after 1920 um, that I think we are just beginning to uncover. I think the anniversary really revived a lot of these questions. But when I look at, you know, she's at Columbia, she's getting a PhD. There are other women there getting PhDs and the numbers of women getting PhDs are actually rising in the early 20th century, but they run into this problem of there are no jobs for them. Um, people refuse to hire women as professors and, and especially a Chinese woman um, in the U.S. And so uh, the numbers then begin to drop. Right. So for so after the 20s, I think it is. Um, the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the numbers of women getting their PhDs really drops. And so we kind of assume that women weren't getting, right, that it wasn't until the 1960s or 70s. Um, so I think part of it is also just that context and story that we tell ourselves about women's history. And there is really, we think of history as like always positive and always progressing. And I think this is a really good example of you know, women made a lot of strides in the early 20th century that then, um, and then there was some resistance and um, loss of, of those gains that had to be re-fought um, in the 60s and 70s. And so, you know, the way we tell um, historical narratives can create these places where people get overlooked, either because we assume, well, women didn't start doing this until later, or, well, who was a, a suffragist? Um, Mabel Lee didn't necessarily fit into that. Yeah. Do we know from her writings at all or from the, the stories uh, that people that knew her talk about, did she think of herself as American or Chinese? Was it not that, that simple? Well, she couldn't become a U.S. citizen. And she does talk a lot about uh, returning to China initially. And she talks about, right, China as her country. And, and she really does um, focus a lot of her women's rights advocacy on this Chinese Students Association, where most of those students are men, not all of them, but most of them, they are absolutely going back to become the leaders of the new Chinese Republic. 
And so she is part of building that new nation and she's very involved in these trans-Pacific um, conversations. She ultimately doesn't go back. And I, I think there are a couple of reasons. One, you know, kind of uh, the rising tensions between China and Japan um, and the violence there that, that ultimately um, you know, starts before World War II broadly. But then also when her father dies, um, she's sort of torn between, um, you know, does she take over his life's work, which is the, the first Chinese Baptist church that he has founded, um, or does she sort of move into, she was sort of thinking about international business, um, and she had thought about going back to China, and she ultimately decides to to, to work um, with the church. And she raises money to build, a, I think it's a five-story building in Chinatown in his honor, where the church still exists and serves as a community center. And, you know, he had really supported her in some ways, uh, very unusual for a Chinese girl to be educated um, as highly as she was, both in kind of the Chinese classics and those traditions, which he was working with her on, and, um, you know, in the U.S. system where she, again, goes to college. And he was a big supporter of that along with her mother. So she has this, and she talks about filial piety in one of her articles and, and felt very strongly about that. So, you know, I think she she did consider herself um, Chinese and was excited about the new nation and, and felt very much a part of building that, um, but ultimately does choose to stay in the U.S. So uh, I guess maybe that starts to answer this question is, you know, why, why is she working in, in suffrage and women's suffrage when she is not going to get to vote? So, you know, women in New York State get the vote and then, you know, across the country in 1920. And, but she doesn't, she's can't vote until 1943. And as far as I can tell, we don't know if she ever did end up voting. Right. Um, but is that because she's thinking more broadly than just America and her own ability to vote? I think she's thinking more broadly in two ways. Both she is thinking um, in terms of these international and transnational conversations about women's rights, right? This was a global movement. It wasn't just happening in the U.S., um, Carrie Chapman Catt is initially, before she's president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, she's president of the International Alliance Women's Suffrage. I can't remember the full title. But um, so, so conversations are happening in China around questions of modernization um, and ultimately what becomes the um, Republican Revolution in 1911 that overthrows the Qing dynasty and is talking about, right, um, ending the empire and establishing sort of democratic systems of governance and how women's rights are part of that conversation. Dr. Sun Yat-sen and, and the revolutionaries are supportive um, of women's rights. And initially, it seems as though women will get suffrage in China. So she's part of those international conversations, um, as are you know, her mother and some of the other women in New York City's Chinatown um, but she's also, um, and this is true for many of the women I write about, they see suffragists, white suffragists and suffrage conversations as a way into a much larger conversation about citizenship and rights that their communities, um, that they really want to advocate for, right? So she, uh, when she gives her speech at 16 to these right, the, the biggest suffrage leaders in the nation, Anna Howard Shaw, for example, who's president of Nassau, 
she's talking about women's education and how Chinese students, boys and girls, um, are sort of shut out of educational opportunities. And she talks about right what we would call intersectionality and how um, being Chinese and the sort of limitations on, on citizenship for Chinese immigrants um, are affecting Chinese women and, and white American women should be caring about this topic and should be sort of helping. So she's really navigating kind of these multiple conversations and suffrage is a place where women's suffrage is a place where enormous numbers of women are active. They're having these conversations about citizenship and rights. And it dovetails really nicely with, again, women of color who want to talk about rights and gender and how their experience is different from white women, um, but equally valid. Yeah. So I want to talk some then about her time uh, in the ministry taking over after her father dies. Would this have been unusual at all for a, a woman to to take charge of this congregation? It, you know, it, it seems like it's it's just sort of accepted. Okay, she, you know, it, it was her dad's ministry, and and now it's hers. You know, and you know, as she's raising money for a building, you know, and and all these activities as as a woman in this was like nineteen. 19- the 20s, 30s. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, like it, it seems unusual, not just for a, a Chinese woman, but for a woman at all in, in this time. So can you talk some about that and the, the sort of the, the way that this congregation then accepts her and, and, and seems uh, at least in hindsight, 100 years later, seems to have really welcomed her? Yeah, that's a great question. And I will say that the scholar who introduced me to the church, Dr. Timothy Seng, um, has written a little bit about this. So I'm going to draw on his work, but yeah, I mean, she, I think as someone who was very well educated, right. She has a PhD. She is her father and mother's only child. She's an only child. So in some ways she's sort of a natural heir to this position, but also um, she's part of a generation that's coming out of um, the um, settlement house movement. Right. And so women like um, Jane Addams in Chicago or Lavinia Dock in the Henry Street settlement in New York, right? There's that as a precedent. Um, and at the First Chinese Baptist Church, um, they're largely helping Chinese immigrants and, and the community. And they're doing things like there's there are kindergarten classes and kind of language classes. And so the church work is also part of that kind of settlement housework. And there is a precedent for women in those positions. And actually her very good friend, um, who she, who was a, a Chinese intellectual, he'd been a student at Harvard. He is um, an editor in China. And he, he says to her, right, aren't, weren't your ambitions to be the Chinese Jane Adams? And so I think that model was there. I think the the Baptist church appreciated, I mean, she has these incredible skills. I think she was very good at it. Ultimately, um, there's a lot of tension there. And she spends quite a bit of kind of the 30s and 40s and 50s trying to get control of the church um, from the missionary society. And I imagine as a woman with a PhD, it was really frustrating that she couldn't make a lot of the decisions on her own. And so she never becomes the minister, right? Um, so in that sense, it's she's not quite the same as her father, but she's administering it. And she does have a board of um, deacons 
um, and men who are helping her run the church. And, and a lot of the pictures from this period are, right, she's the only woman kind of in the <laughs> group of men, uh, which is interesting. But I have less uh, from her in terms of sources writing about that. So I don't know for sure. But I do think initially she really, that settlement house model worked for her. And there were, again, sort of these moments in women's history, right? Women um, missionaries who the sense was, I mean, especially in terms of um, proselytizing to other women, uh, you needed female missionaries. So there are in that early, you know, kind of late 19th, early 20th century, these other models of the missionary model, kind of the settlement house model where women were had more, I don't want to say power, but had more ability to kind of be in charge of some of these organizations. Yeah. So at the end of your book, which everyone should go read, by the way, <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's very readable in addition to being a wealth of information. Um, but you talk about these women, the women of color, not just Mabel Lee, but, but all of the women that you write about, thinking about history and their place in history and how we construct history, you know, sort of where we started this conversation. So can you talk some about that broadly, not just for Mabel Lee, perhaps, but, you know, what what they were doing in a way to make sure they were sort of writing themselves into the story? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me start with Mabel and then kind of open it out. So for her, she's really thinking about tradition and breaking tradition because of the Chinese revolution, right? And the language of those revolutionaries is, right? And in part, it was a response to um, these sort of Western stereotypes about China as backwards and caught in tradition so much so that, that again, Chinese, they're seen as so different from the Western world. And, and this is part of the reasoning behind the U.S., enforcing the Chinese Exclusion Acts and not allowing Chinese immigrants to naturalize. I mean, that's unusual. There's no other group of immigrants that the U.S. treats like this. And it has everything to do with these sort of stereotypes of China and, and the Orient, right, quote unquote Orient. So the revolutionaries that she is um, and sort of this younger generation that she's engaged with, they're all thinking about you know, overthrowing tradition and starting something new. And in her dissertation, which is an economic history of China's um, agriculture, and she looks at like two centuries of, of agricultural history, she's arguing, you know, we can't throw everything out. We actually should look, she says, at um, older sources with new scientific methods and sort of learn from that past to help the future. So she's really thinking about these kinds of questions um, broadly because of that. And she's also, right, as she's engaging with white suffragists, really educating them about what's happening in China and trying to pull them out of their very um, ethnocentric notions of suffrage and, and saying, well, here's what women in China are doing and the women's rights movement in China. And, you know, let's think about these things together. The other women that I write about are also really thinking about history in large part because they recognize that in the United States, these claims to belonging um, are often very steeped in history. Um, for African-American women, this is the moment where uh, the Civil War is being rewritten, right? And white Southerners, the daughters of the Confederacy, um, are really rewriting the Civil War into the kind of honorable fight between brothers 
that slavery, you know, maybe shouldn't have been uh, overturned and and rewriting, you know, what emancipation meant that it was actually bad for African-Americans. And black women are responding to that by offering an alternative history of no, actually, right? Slavery was bad. Women were sexually assaulted all of the time, right? Families were torn apart. And so trying to counter those narratives that were really seductive. I mean, I should say it's not all white Southerners. Um, uh, Professor Dunning at Columbia, who's one of Mabel's, she's there at the same time Mabel Lee is there, is also participating in this. Woodrow Wilson is participating in that retelling. So, you know, this is a, a moment that early 20th, late 19th, early 20th is very similar to our discussions today, right? For me, I see in the discussions about the 1619 Project, very similar stances, right? Where um, there are a group of people who don't, who reject kind of what the 1619 Project is saying because it undermines claims about sort of the progressive history, right? The history is always getting better. And that the, the people writing in the 1619 Project are saying, but actually, you know, let's confront this past. So history is always political, and it was for these women as well. And again, that, that turn of the century, along with the rewriting of the Civil War, there's also a real interest in the revolution. And this is Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's um, Age of Homespun, where you know there's a real kind of fascination with that American revolution and American identity. And so women like Nina Otero Warren and other women of um, Hispanic descent, and they choose Hispanic very deliberately as opposed to Mexican descent in the Southwest, in California and New Mexico. They're making claims, they're talking about their community's history as conquerors of Native people as a way to claim U.S. citizenship, right? Oh, yes, just like you know, the people on the East Coast, the British on the East Coast conquered Native people, and that's what made them Americans, right? This is this is the moment of um, the frontier thesis. You know, Hispanic, our Spanish ancestors, and they kind of ignore that their, their ancestry is both Spanish and indigenous. They were also sort of conquering from the South. And so they're using that to claim an American identity. So the way in which history is used to claim identity as right, a member of the United States, a lot of these women are doing that. And part of that is to say, and here's how our community contributed to the creation of the US. And in Mabel's case, it's less that and more, here's how we're contributing to sort of women's rights um, as a as a nat- an international conversation. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting reading this sort of seeing how these women are are navigating being not white in different ways uh, and, and how they are received differently by white society. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, really fascinating to, to sort of, you know, sort of thread that through. And so that that I think uh, is is one of the really interesting parts of the story is you know it's it's women of color but of course these are all very different they're experiencing it differently they're experiencing being in America differently and uh, and and doing what they have to do to sort of get get the rights that that they would like to get and that was actually a really kind of a tough um, coming up with a term <laughs> and I don't love women of color right because it does lump 
every, you know, all of these women into a category that is not right. And, and what I hope is by the end of the book, people will realize that they're coming from different places with different motivations. Um, There are places where those things overlap and they overlap with white women in some places as well. But we can't just say that there was one kind of women's experience um, that we have to think intersectionally, that we have to think about kind of the communities they're in, the places they're in, right? Suffrage in particular is a real state by state narrative. And that does matter. Um, you know, Black women in the South have a different experience from Black women in the, the North or the West. So, yeah, I do hope that that even though I use women of color in the title, by the end of the book, people um, might think, well, that's, that's too, um, the term doesn't, it's too flattening. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And you, you mentioned uh, Woodrow Wilson a bit ago. So I will just say he does not come off very well. No, he does story. not. You know, and yeah, exactly. I And I knew, again, I had been at Princeton for a year. Um, I was on sabbatical. And it was during the sort of um, when the students were, were uh, when the students were protesting the name of uh, the school and sitting in at the president's office. And I sort of knew that and I knew Wilson was bad, but it really was writing this when um, and sort of seeing exactly those moments when he is segregating the civil service and what that meant. Um, it, yeah, it was extremely disappointing, but also just really revealing. And, and as I said, I sort of knew that, but to really see it affect the women I was writing about was powerful. And, and that led me to right kind of one of the moments when you're writing about individuals, you often become, you know, you, you feel like you know them and you're sort of <laughs> enjoying writing about them. And, and that was one of the early moments when Marie Botno Baldwin, who is a Native woman working in the civil service in Washington, D.C. in 1913, where I found a letter from her attacking a black doctor who was also an employee in the, in the civil service. Um, and using this really racist white supremacist language about black men shouldn't be with, you know, young Indian girls. And we all know how they, they are. And um, to sort of take that and say, well, what do I do with this? Right. Here is a woman um, who, you know, is also from an oppressed group. Right. As a native woman and is very politically active, both um, in the Society of American Indians and in the suffrage movement and here she is attacking a black man what do i do with that and that's where i really had to start thinking about well just because people are from oppressed groups doesn't mean they don't also participate in oppression and that helped me think about again how a native woman could um, use white supremacist language to talk about a black man it made me think about how women um you know, Hispanas or Latinas, like Nino Otero Warren could be talking in very um, patronistic ways um, and using a language of, of colonization and imperialism to talk about Native people um, and how these were parts of their political strategies um, that we have to think about as well. I, I just want to bring up the the sort of uh, what would feel to me like the most shocking is probably not the right word, because if I'd really stopped and thought about it, I think I would have realized that this moment would happen. Um, but is right after the 19th Amendment is finally ratified, women are voting for the first time in the 1920 election. 
African-American women in the South are not able to register to vote or show up and have been struck from the rolls. And they go to Alice Paul for help. And she basically is just like, can't help you. It'll make too many white women mad. And so I, I don't know, maybe if you could just talk about that, uh, <laughs> that moment and that tension and, you know, what, maybe what that can tell us about sort of today and the importance of white women being allies for women of color. Yeah, one of the thing and one of the things that I want the book to do is to make us really think about 1920. And and here I am not original, right? Here I am absolutely um, learning from feminist scholars of color and especially African American uh, scholars of African American women's history that you know just because this 19th Amendment passed doesn't mean that all women suddenly started voting. And you know when I looked at these individual women, you could see. That, that 1920 isn't necessarily the end point for a lot of these women's fight for the right to vote. Um, and it's because it says, right, the vote shall not be denied on the basis of sex, but that leaves a lot of other ways in which it can be denied. And so you see this with the women that I'm writing about, that some of them, Nina Otara Warren, as a, a woman whose citizenship um, and whiteness is guaranteed by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, is able to vote and even run for Congress in 1922. Native women are still not considered U.S. citizens in 1920. Um, They have to keep fighting. We see Black women in the South keep fighting. Mabel Lee is, again, also not a citizen. um, And Chinese immigrants are not going to fall under that naturalization of the 14th Amendment until um, 1943 and then 1950, I think it's a 1954 law. So those narratives keep the fight keeps going for those women. And you're absolutely right. They go to white women who now can vote and ask for help. Um, And we see this Gertrude Bonin um, or Kalasha really does this. She asks Alice Paul and these black women are also asking Alice Paul in this um, major conference right after that 19th amendment. And Alice Paul is sort of like, well, you know, we'll kind of, she sort of says we'll take care of it at some point, but she's not interested in focusing on that. And she eventually will say, well, the Equal Rights Amendment will, will take care of it. And that's her focus. But she's clearly not right. Her She sees the fight for the right to vote as over. And it's not. And these women have told her that it's not right. They've told her their experiences. Other women's groups, white women's groups are more willing to ally in other places. Um, the NAACP is. Um, biracial. Uh, The General Federation of Women's Clubs really takes up the question of Native women's right to vote, but it is um, not all white women's groups do, right? And that's where we see, for sure, um, you know, some disappointment in terms of allyship. So I don't, I get, (laughs) I do get asked that a lot, like, what does this mean (laughs) for the present? And I, I mean, I think, I don't always feel like I have a good answer to it. It is disappointing, right? It was really disappointing. And it does make me at least um, stop and think about how I'm approaching issues, who I'm listening to. As I said, a lot of these women were trying to educate their white audiences and they were not always getting through. And so I really do try to um, myself, make sure that I'm listening to women of color and asking, well, what are they suggesting? Because, and again, Black women in particular were, were often saying, you know, if we, who are really right, the most, you know, oppressed 
group of people and with this intersection of, of race and, and sex, if we have our rights, then everybody will have their rights. Um, and I think that's a really powerful position to keep in mind. And I, I think they were absolutely right. And they've been saying that right, for many, many, many decades. Um, so is there anything else you wanted to make sure we talk about? I think what most surprised me in finding her story was just how much people were talking about Chinese women and Chinese women's right to vote. Um, I mean, there's a good year and a half where that's a really dominant theme in U.S. suffrage organizations. Again, Anna Howard Shaw, who's the president of the national organization, spends an entire summer carrying this banner that she had carried in that 1912 parade that says Nassau catching up with China. Her whole speaking tour from the parade in May through the summer to the Democratic Convention in August is about China and Chinese women's right to vote, which the U.S. sort of thinks is happening. It's more complicated. And so that, um, you know, the fact that it was that visible at the time and then completely got forgotten really fascinated me, sort of thinking about how did, how did that happen and what was going on, right? I always tell my students, if you find something in the sources that you don't understand and you think, what's up with that? You, you got to follow that. And I'm so glad that I followed this question of, you know, what is Mabel Lee doing at the head of this parade? That didn't make any sense to me in terms of how the, the suffrage story that I had been taught and the suffrage narrative I had been taught. Um, and so there, there it was. Well, I'm glad you followed it up too. <laughs> and I'm glad I got to learn about uh, Mabel Lee. So Kathleen, thank you so much for joining me. This was a terrific conversation. Uh, and I'm, I'm so glad that I got to learn more about Mabel Lee and, and all of the women that you write about. Thank you. This was so much fun. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. MSW.